Well, good morning, tiny flock. Um, we'll go ahead and get cranking. So we are going to start going through the statement of faith. As some of you probably saw the Realm post, I figured this would be good. We haven't gone through it in a number of years. So um, we're going to go through, and we're going to go through topic by topic. I don't have a particular time frame in mind, but I also don't want to um, exhaustively explore all the potential topics that are sort of um, subheaded under each of these um, areas that, that are in the statement of faith. Um, so like for instance, the Holy Scriptures, there are so many things we could deviate and talk about in depth, but we're just going to give a general sense of what we as a church believe and specifically leadership. But I would think this is something that is um, going to be believed and held by everyone in the body here at New Covenant. So um, if you don't have a statement of faith, um, there's one on the website. You can pull it up on your phone right on the homepage. Go to the icon, scroll down, statement of faith, scroll down. You'll see it highlighted in blue. Um, but before we get into this, why don't I go ahead and open us with prayer and we'll get started. But yeah, Carrie, if, we really just need page one today if there's some, some of those. Okay. Well, let's go ahead and, and ask the Lord to be with us. Well, Father, we thank you for these few moments that we have to look into your scriptures, uh, to be refreshed and reminded on what we believe and why we believe it. And Father, we pray that you would be our teacher, Holy Spirit, you would come and bear witness to the truth. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so I'm going to start off in Romans 1, Romans chapter 1, verse 2. Romans chapter 1, verse 2. And I want to start off with this, this scripture verse. Not to dissect every piece, but I want you to notice the way that the Apostle Paul regards scripture. And actually, before I do that, keep your finger there, or your, your page there turned to Romans 1. Let me, let me go ahead and read this first point on our statement of faith. So... Point one there says that the Holy Scriptures of the Old and New Testaments in their original manuscripts being directly inspired by God and without error whatsoever are the only infallible authority for Christian truth and living. So, so the Holy Scriptures, Old and New Testaments, right? Not the Apocrypha. We've got the Old Testament and the New Testament. In their original manuscripts, we'll talk a little bit about that in a second being directly inspired by God, which is an okay way of saying it. We'll talk a little bit later about what may be better. And Steve and I still want to revise our statement of faith. This statement of faith is pretty old. Um, but good enough, inspired, inspired by God, you understand that this is God superintending and working in authors to produce manuscripts that we call the Holy Scriptures, and they are without error. That is, there is no, there is no, uh, no text whatsoever that has any error whatsoever with regard to general truth and concepts, or even historical settings, dates, those kinds of things. So whatsoever, no error whatsoever, and they are the only infallible authority. There's no man that's an infallible authority. Uh, there's no council, right? There's no other book 
that is the infallible authority for Christian truth and living. So that's, that's our statement, and we're going to unpack that a little bit. And so I wanted to start off with the first terms here, the Holy Scriptures. The Holy Scriptures. I, I, I love that, and I, I think maybe over time you might use that if you don't already. But just as you think about the Bible, the Word of God that we have with us, you want to think about them the way the New Testament writers thought, and that is that they are Holy Scriptures. Right? What you, what you have in front of you, either on your phone or in book form, are the Holy Scriptures. This is not something that Christians come and say, well, we think that our Bible is holy. This is something that the New Testament writers themselves say. So if you look at Romans 1, verse 2, Paul says at the beginning of his letter, one and, uh, verse 1 and 2, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, so Paul saw himself attached to Jesus and as a slave, as it were, to Jesus, someone who was open to the and willing to, to obey and live for Christ Jesus. He's called as an apostle, so an authoritative spokesman sent out by Christ, and he's set apart for the gospel of God. So not just, not just, not just set apart to do just humanitarian good works. Paul is set apart for the gospel of God, which, talking about this gospel, he promised, that is God promised beforehand, well, when? Through his prophets. So we're talking about the Old Testament, aren't we? Through his prophets, in the Holy Scriptures, in the Holy Scriptures, considering his son, who was born of a descendant of David, according to the flesh. So notice the spirit-inspired adjective Paul uses to describe the writings of the prophets. He calls them holy, doesn't he? The Holy Scriptures. I love that. The Holy Scriptures. Holy is that idea, most of us know, being set apart by God for a specific function or use. They are different. They are not common. They are holy. So you think in the Old Testament, you got people called holy, priests and the like. The tabernacle's holy. Temple furniture are, are, is holy. The, all the accouterments and utensils used in temple tabernacle service are called holy. There is ground that is called holy because God is there. There are angels that are called holy. And of course, God is said to be holy, holy, holy. All of these things and these people and these beings are unique and in a class all by themselves because God himself has made them for himself. So the ground is holy because God's there, right? The priests are holy because they're God's priests. The utensils, the furniture, these things are holy because God has set them apart. So this is, at, this is, this is the way it is with our Bibles. We have the scriptures that are holy. Paul himself has this view in the first century before sort of any scholar, any biblical scholar, or any liberal scholar has a chance to postulate that Christians made up the doctrine of a divine inspiration by calling the scriptures holy. Paul says these are holy scriptures. They are set apart by God, unique, other, unique and in a class all by themselves in the history of the world. So they are the holy scriptures. So as we consider the statement of faith, we have a tremendous resource that God has set apart and given to us, right, in the, in the Holy Scriptures. Um, so thankful that we have this. We, we cannot fathom what kind of gift we really have 
we take it for, for granted often, but they are the holy scriptures, as Paul says. And of course, they concern his son, don't they? At the end of the day, if you read the Bible right, you're gonna, it's going to point to faith and love for the Lord Jesus. Um, that's what Paul says. And again, we don't, we don't want to unpack every little bit here of the first part of Romans, but Paul says that in these holy scriptures, they concern his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh. So, so the scriptures are unique and they are holy. They point to Christ. And so um, that's why they're holy. All right, so why start, why in our statement of faith do we start with the scriptures? Why, not do, we, why do we not start with, let's say, the attributes of God or who is God? It boils down to authority, doesn't it? It boils down to authority. We start with the scriptures when it comes to articulating our faith because our faith rests on the revelation of God, ultimately, doesn't it? Um, it doesn't rest on the invention of men. It, race, it rests on the revelation of God. And so before we can begin to talk about God, we need to establish that, that, well, first of all, we need to establish if God has spoken, and we believe he has, and if he has, what has he said about himself and about redemptive history and about how we should live, about how we should think? Um, and so this is not something we concoct. Uh, we start with the scriptures because it's from there we understand who God is. I was talking to a lady yesterday while she was cutting my hair. I've actually talked to her before. I think now she's going to start to get annoyed with me. But, um, but uh, we were talking about, she was talking about this, this, um, this band that she likes named Flywheel. Anybody heard of Flywheel? No? I'd never heard of them either. But she said she liked them for a while until they, they became too conservative. And I was like, oh, what do you mean by that? And she said, well, she's, she's really interested in conversion. I was like, conversion? I was like, so she's a Christian? She's like, yeah. And so we were talking a little bit about that. And I said, well, do you, I said, she, she's probably interested in conversion because from what she reads in the Bible, this is what needs to happen, right, to, to human beings. They need to be converted from, from sin to Christ. And she's like, yeah. She's like, but I just don't think it's, you know, I just don't think it's anybody's place to do that. And um, I said, well, I mean, if hell is real, then she wouldn't she would be cruel to keep it from you and to keep it from others, right? I mean, if, if she's telling people to be converted to Jesus because in Jesus you don't perish, then that's the loving thing to do. Withhold, withholding that information is cruel. And I gave her some illustrations in this and that. I said, but really, at the end of the day, it boils down to who's right. And I, I, I told her it really boils down to who's right. What gives this girl who sings with flywheel the right to say what she says and what gives you the right to say what you say? It boils down to authority. Really, in every discussion... Um, every hot topic in our culture, it's, it's, really, it's really won or lost based on the authority that you speak from, you know? Um, and so it's, what's the challenge is in our culture, we believe, you know, or we see that people believe that they're their own authority. And so that's challenging. And so you have to help them see the risk they're taking by putting all of their eggs in the basket of their own noggin. Right, um, or even the prevailing winds of what the culture might think on a given thing. Um, you want to make them feel how risky that is, right? The ever-changing perspectives and opinions of a culture versus the living and abiding Word of God that has thousands of years of credential and withstanding scrutiny and attack and opposition and even and even emperors of Rome trying to burn them in the streets. Um, in the fourth century. So, 
so, but ultimately, it comes down to authority. It comes down to why do you say what you're going to say? I remember being down at the county council meeting down there debating on that topic of uh, porno- child pornography in the kids section. You know, there were many people there saying you should get it out of there and other people that were saying you should keep it in there. Well, who's right? <laughs> I mean, what finally... I mean, what finally are you going to appeal to? I mean, you can appeal to human flourishing. You can appeal to common decency. But at the end of the day, if they don't care about that or if they've got answers to that, what do you do? Well, I mean, you have to rest ultimately on an objective authority, um, which again, they reject. But we as Christians have to, have to come back to an objective authority, which is, which is the word of God. So we start there um, in our statement of faith because without this, we don't have anything to say. Right, we have nothing to believe that we can rest any amount of surety on, um, but with the Word of God, we have every reason to think that we can come to a knowledge of God and to say true things about Him and about who we are and about we, what we are to do. Um, so, any questions on that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you. There's different ways you can do it. I tried to start talking to the girl yesterday about. I said, "Well, do you believe in objective or absolute truth?" And her words to me were, I don't know. That was it. And I was like, oh, you know, well, you should. I mean, where else do you go? It's sort of a conversation stopper. I don't know. Well, and the reality is she does know, right? And I, but I'm, you know, I'm not in a spot. I can tell she doesn't want to talk. I could, I could actually see her hand shaking a little bit more with the, with the razors, you know. I'm like, well, Yeah. Yeah, you know, I sacrificed, you know, I took, I took a risk, but, um, but no, it's true. I mean, I, one of the things, and I'll say this, so Tim Keller wrote a book called Reason for God. There are many things in the book that I don't, I do not like. Um, but one thing that I really do like in that book, and that's, that's worth getting just for this is he is able very, very capably to instruct you as you're reading it on ways to help people feel the risk of their own positions. And that, in other words, he gets you to think about the underlying presuppositions that they have in their view, and, um, and it's really helpful. In other words, what people don't realize is that everyone has an exclusive belief. That everyone is an exclusivist. People want to say, well, I'm open to this, I'm open to that, and the other thing. Right? Unless it's talking about... Jesus being the only way, I'm no longer open to that. So you're exclusive on all of this, but not that, you know. So, but you get people to think about the fact that everyone really have ex- has exclusive claims. You just have to figure out what those are, and then make them feel the risk of them living their whole life really based on man-made opinion rather than objective truth that's written for us. And that sometimes can, I mean, that can take a while to talk with people, but. But ultimately, you just want to talk to them about that. You know, everybody believes in objective truth when you're flying in an airplane, right? Or when you're driving your car. Um, th- those kinds of, you know, th- there's all kinds of illustrations there. But I didn't have the time yesterday with her. But I'd actually already given her American Gospel and asked her if she watched it. She's like, no. It's like, well, you know, you should. Yeah, absolutely. And, of course, you know, it means case by case, right? You might start with a skeptic like the girl cutting my hair who's basically... I mean, sort of a self-proclaimed nihilist without maybe knowing what that is um, <clears throat> fully because she just doesn't know or doesn't care. She's indifferent. But, um, but yeah, it's so case by case. But 
I think there's, I think there's, I think we have great reason to boast in the word of God. I mean, you begin to talk to people about, as the Rustman's confession says, the majesty of the word of God, like here are all the reasons why it's amazing. (laughs) And whether or not they believe you or agree with you or not, you know, they're going to li- they're going to hear that and they're going to see that you're not just some Bible thumper. You're someone who has been captured and captivated by this book. And, and you begin to talk with them about the coherence of it, the reality that this is not just a bunch of rules of, of people playing telephone over, you know, thousands of years. This is, this is one mind over it all speaking to one unique person and the redemption that he accomplishes written over several thousand years. You know, you have a little elevator speech in your back pocket, so to speak, and you just begin to commend the scriptures to them. I mean, why not? Who, who cares? Like, there's no rules on where to start and what not to start. Again, it does depend. I mean, if people are like, well, I don't believe the Bible, well, then you can just start to go down the road. Well, what do you believe? Everybody believes in something. And then you can sort of take it from there. But I'm, I'm always encouraging people to commend the Bible. And, and if you're talking with people even more than that, having a Bible with you that they can read and see and point and say, Hey, look, this is what it says. Um, you know, I remember talking with a guy the other day, um, at Miracle Hill about various things. He's a homeless guy at the rescue mission. And, um, he was talking to me about where he's at and his confusion about the Bible and these kinds of things. And I started to talk to him and then I started to realize we just need to sit down and open it. So we sat down and we opened it and I began to point things to him and have him read it. And his eyes were just lighting up over and over. Jeff saw it. Just his eyes were lighting up. And there's just something about the word of God that commends itself to the human being as this is amazing. And when you're showing them and then you're, you're kind of interpreting it for them, you show them that this is meant to be understood. Right? This is not like, well, we can't understand anything about the lofty God. No, he wrote this for you. You can understand it. And, um, so, which we're going to talk a little bit about more, but, um, but I, yeah, commend the word of God to people, help them. And if, and if you don't go there, help them to feel the risk of them living their life and basing their future based on their own opinion and their own authority, make them feel the risk of that. Hey, you could be wrong here. And if you're wrong, this has, you know, drastic, you know, in, uh, in, uh, implications. Eternal. Yeah. Eternal. Yeah. I, I think so. Quick word about the original manuscripts. We're saying the Holy Scriptures, the Old New Testaments, in their original manuscripts are directly inspired by God. <clears throat> what do we mean by original manuscripts are without error? What we mean is that the handwritten apostolic or prophetic letters and writings of the Bible had no error whatsoever. Um, and it's important to say that we no longer have these documents. Right? We, we no longer have the original manuscripts, the actual letter that John wrote with his own hand or with an amanuensis, whatever. We don't have these anymore. Is this a problem? No. Why? Well, because we have so many copies that we are 99.99% sure on what the originals said. Um, plus it's also important to understand that what these things were originally written on were things that were perishable, you know, hides of animals, papyri, these kinds of things. These are perishable items. Um, and not also, and, and also with that, when you, you have to also understand when, when you have, you know, one of Paul's letters fresh off the press who shows up in your town, you know, these things are going to be copied with, with great frequency. So they're going to be handled frequently and those kinds of things. There's just many reasons why 
it makes sense that we don't have the originals. Now, we get some pretty stinking close fragments, but the, the further you go back, the smaller and smaller the fragments are, which makes sense because you're talking about going back older and older. So P66, for instance, you know, it's about this big, you know. I think it's P66, it's my memory. But, you know, it's f super small in John, of John's gospel. But, um, but even that corresponds to the larger copies of, in, of manuscripts that we have hundreds of years later. You know, if you were to take this one and put it over that, you're like, oh, wow, it's the same text. So, um, so all that to say that, you know, the, the, the nature of what they wrote on, the frequent copying, um, these kind of lend themselves to why we don't have the originals anymore. But, but it's important to know we have more copies, and you guys know this, more copies of the biblical books than any other ancient document, by far. I mean, it's, not, it's, it's, an, it's, it's laughable um, for anyone to, to think that we, um, that we have any question, really, about what these early New Testament writers, or even the Old Testament writers, originally wrote. Um, we don't treat any other ancient document like that with far less manuscript evidence. Um, so, which that, that in a, this, this in itself is a whole topic that we could take, but we don't want to, we kind of want to just go through sort of a cursory um, a, approach here. Yeah. We have so many and we have so, we have, we have, we have them so early too. Or 900. Yeah. Yeah. 900 years. Yeah. 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 900 years after we have the first copy and yet we, you know, we uh, assign them in our university for, for text, yeah. But with the Bible, it's like, eh, we don't know. Like, we have a mountain of evidence. So, um, so yeah. So, any other thoughts or pertinent questions to... Okay. All right. Some, some, some years ago, I, I can't remember who it was, but someone told me, um, or maybe I read it in an article, that nowhere does the Bible claim to be the word of God. You know, you hear this like with the deity of Christ. Like Jesus doesn't go around anywhere saying he's God. How can you tell me he's God, right? And then you can go and demonstrate that. Well, I had a similar argument given to me that nowhere in the Bible does it actually claim to be the word of God. This is something that Christians impose on it. Um, so my question is that. Do we impose a doctrine of inspiration on the Bible or does, or does it emerge? from the Bible. We already saw really in Romans, right? In Romans chapter one, that Paul calls the scriptures what? Holy. Holy, Holy scriptures is what he calls them. I love that. Um, and so just from that text alone, you can see Paul's view of the scriptures, what they were set apart by God in a way very different than normal scriptures or writings. So, but, but let's look at some other places. So go ahead and turn to Matthew 22. And these passages are going to be passages that are reflected in the statement of faith. Some of them, some of them not. Matter of fact, I want, I want to say Matthew 22 may not be footnoted. But again, Steve and I plan on, on revising this at some point. All right, so Matthew 22, verse 29 through 33. Again, don't have don't have the time to comment on everything. You remember the context here. The Sadducees, who did not believe in a resurrection, were questioning Jesus, trying to trap him, right? So they were talking, giving this scenario that if, verse 24, if a man dies having no children, and his brother, as next of kin, marries his wife and raises up children for his brother, how does this work out if there are seven brothers who end up marrying this one woman in the resurrection, Whose husband does she have, or who's her husband in the resurrection? And so in verse 29, 
Jesus answers them with this statement that is meant, or this question that's meant to trap him. And Jesus says, you are mistaken, not understanding the scriptures, nor the power of God. Okay, and now he addresses that, the power of God, verse 30, for in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And then about the scriptures, verse 31, but regarding the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, of, uh, God of the dead but of the living. And when the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. So, wonderful passage for so many reasons, but let's think about it as it pertains to the scriptures. Jesus appeals here. This is Jesus, the word of God, right? The incarnate word, God himself. He appeals to the scriptures to answer the theological, the, the theological question that they pose. He, he doesn't just say, I say to you, which he could have, and he does say other places, right? But here he actually points to the scriptures. Have you not read? Right? And so this is, this is his sort of MO. Jesus has a very, very high view of the scriptures. Um, here he focuses on the scriptures to give understanding on something as consequential as the ultimate fate of human beings, like the resurrection of the dead and what nature they will be in the new heavens and new earth. And he gets this from the scriptures. Uh, the scriptures are clear. They are meant to be understood. Um, that's one thing, again, that you get from this. There's, there's no sense in which Jesus is saying, well, you need to be taught a little bit more, Sadducees. He doesn't say that. There's an assumption here that the scriptures are meant to be understood if you read them. Um, and, of course, if you read them with faith. But the idea here is that when they are not understood, it's a moral problem. Right? Um, it's not a clarity issue. The scriptures are clear, but these men obviously uh, lacked the faith and the will to understand it. And we know that because Jesus says in John 7, if anyone is willing to do his will, he will know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak for myself. So clear, clearly here, these, these people are not asking honest questions. We know that. But they're not understanding the scriptures because they don't have the humility of faith to understand the Bible. So... And in, and in tandem with that, the idea here is that, is that we understand the scriptures by divine revelation um, and illumination. That, that's how we understand them ultimately. And that's why when a new person becomes a believer, they begin to have this, this hunger for the scriptures. And God gives that to them. And they begin to understand things that they never did. Even someone that was raised in a Christian home, he might understand all kinds of things about the Bible all of a sudden, when the light comes on and they have the Spirit, all of a sudden that Bible becomes alive. Yeah, illuminated. That's right. So, um, so the scriptures are clear. Um, it, we, we understand them by divine revelation. We're going to see these things in multiple passages we're going to go to. And, and we're going to see that Jesus' view of the scriptures was that they were true and binding from every grand statement to every article and in even verb tense. All of those things are intentional by God and profitable for teaching and correction. And the reason I say verb tense is because Jesus here bases his whole doctrine of the resurrection on the present tense verb in verse 32. He says regarding the resurrection, 
Have you not read what was spoken to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac. So the idea there is that, yes, he's the God of Abraham. God is alive, or Abraham is alive. He is the God of Abraham now. Abraham will be there in the resurrection because Abraham has him as his God now. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. So Jesus bases his understanding of the revelation of, of the resurrection based on the present tense verb. Um, so Jesus believes in a written form of divine revelation that was binding then and binding now. And you're going to see that too in verse 31. Regarding the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God? Now that's a that's a that's an interesting way to put it. Jesus does not say regarding the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to when was that? Was that back in Exodus? Um yeah, Exodus three, was this yeah, I think this was spoken to Moses. I forgot to look that up. But spoken back in Exodus, um, where God says, I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Jesus here doesn't say, have you not read what was spoken to him? Jesus says here, have you not read what was spoken to you thousands of years later? Now think about that for a second. Have you not read, so he's talking about the scriptures, have you not read what was spoken to you in Exodus 3? Well, wait, who was God speaking to? He was speaking to Moses. But Jesus is saying, have you not read what was spoken to you? So think about Jesus' view of the scriptures. It's a living, breathing book. It's a living, breathing revelation of God to whoever reads it. That's the point. To whoever reads it. Because if scripture speaks, God speaks. That's, that's the idea. This is Jesus' view, not our view. We don't impose this on the Bible. We don't say when the scripture speaks, God speaks. Jesus says that. Have you not read what was spoken to you by God? Now, by God is important. Not just spoken to you by Moses, the one who wrote this down, but by God. So think, what you read is spoken to you by God and is morally binding on you to believe it. So this is the kind of view Jesus himself has of the Old Testament. This is not an imposition. This is what Jesus says. God records his ancient speech for future audiences to believe, to obey. So this is Jesus' view of the Old Testament. Any questions on that? Yeah, amen. Yeah, it's the whole, the, yep, that Old Testament's a Christian book. Yeah, the Spirit, yeah, he's vital, and we're, we're going to see that actually in John. Yeah, what changed the Apostle Paul's brain in three days? Right, he is gunning for Christians. And then all of a sudden he's, from the same Bible, taking that very same Bible into synagogues and saying, I was totally wrong. Yeah. It's the spirit. Yeah. Love that. Yes. Yes. Renee knows they're not historical books. Is that which, are you asking what they are? The Catholic Church took them out. As far as I understand, they are in in uh, Catholic Bibles. Yeah, they still are. Yeah, they're still in there. Yeah, I don't think that the apocryphal writings were ever, that there was ever an, a majority consensus that they should be regarded as canon. Both 
the and, and, and my I'm very rusty here. But the what was is it the pseudepigrapha that was in is that is that after the New Testament? And a, and then there's intertestamental literature. So the intertestamental apocryphal writings or history of the Jews, those were never considered as scripture. And then I think there were pseudepigrapha afterwards that that were that was post the New Testament that were never considered scriptures. Historical documents. Worth reading, but yeah, never considered canon. I can't I can't remember. Yeah, my brain I, I don't have it. So yeah, Matt, you go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, it really is, and that's why I'm, I'm trying to stick with my main goal in this. I think the, all these questions are good. My main goal in this is to see from our own Bibles that the doctrine of Scripture emerges from the Bible. That's what I want us to see. This is not an imposition that we put on it. This is something that we're already starting to read in Romans and in Matthew. We're going to see here in Luke in a second. This is just all what emerges from from the text that gives us a rationale. So... Um, and I might deal with canon. I mean, again, we just have to, it's the dilemma of the teacher, isn't it? How far to go? We're doing a statement of faith. So we'll, I'll think about it. I understand. So by canon, what we mean is uh, the standard or the boundary marker of what determines what is scripture and what is not scripture. So canon, that's right. That's the canon of the Bible. And so that canon right there is scripture, everything outside of it, whether we're talking about Apocrypha or we're talking about the Gospel of Thomas, Peter, those kinds of things are not canon. So canon is the measure of what's in and what's out. But yeah, that's, so again, all these things, yeah, they're all important. And maybe I'll have, maybe I'll go down the road of canon. We can. It's, it's honestly extremely important. So yeah, the word itself is, yeah, standard rule. It's measured, yeah, what's in, what's out. That's right. Yeah. God sets up his own sort of rule of what is canon. That's exactly right. All right. One more place and then we'll have to go. It's already. Well, thank you. But no, I, it's, we're already close to being out of time. So 1040, or it's already 1045. So turn to Luke and we'll stop here. Luke 24, Luke 24, 25 and 27. So you know the situation here. Jesus died, buried, rose from the dead. The disciples are still sort of depressed, and those who knew about Christ were still, de- they're sort of depressed. And Jesus um, goes up to a couple of these men that are depressed as they, as they reflect on the fact that this supposed Messiah has been killed, and so they're down. And um, let me think about where to pick up here. Yeah, I don't know how much context to really g- give. Basically, Jesus talking to these men that are, they, they didn't grasp that the Messiah would have to die and, 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 and be crucified, but he would also rise from the dead. And so Jesus says to these men, verse 25, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. So amazing moment here, thankfully recorded for us, of Jesus rebuking these depressed men, calling them foolish, slow of heart to believe. Again, what you're going to find is that it's a moral problem. When you do not understand, or, or, or you disbelieve, I should say, 
or, or don't understand what the scriptures are saying. Jesus puts it back on them. Oh, foolish men and slow of heart to believe. And this is, this is telling or, and, and, and convicting. Um, they should have grasped with the Old Testament scriptures that the Messiah should suffer and die and yet rise again. They should have understood this. Um, um, Jesus doesn't. Yeah, Jesus doesn't. I'm sure it would have been confusing, but Jesus' point is you shouldn't have been confused. Sure, sure. Right. But if you know that those people that were sick that you knew in you know, a matter of 10 days were going to be completely well, then your interaction with them would be a lot different. You know what I mean? So Jesus' point of these guys is, you know, what you, you foolish and slow of heart to believe what was said in Moses and all the prophets. So let me just make a few points of this and then we're done. Moses and all the prophets are synonymous here with the scriptures. These scriptures have a defined boundary or canon from what is or what is not scripture. Jesus says Moses and all the prophets. And if you go down in chapter, 20, uh, chapter 24 of Luke, Jesus also mentions the Psalms as well. So you've got Moses, prophet, Psalms mentioned as, as the scriptures in which the revelation of Christ is contained. Um, so more could be said about that. The other thing here is that the term scriptures here, and I could have already mentioned this before, but for what it's worth, it's the term writings, it's graphe, it's, it's the idea of pen to paper. The writings themselves, um, here's what Jesus is referring to, and, and it's the writings themselves that are binding. In other words, it's not just the original speeches of the prophets, orally handed down or first heard that were authoritative. It's the written record of these prophecies that are authoritative. It's the written record of these speeches and these narratives called Moses' prophet Psalms that are binding and that must be believed and upon which you could, you know, admonish someone for not believing. Um, so, yeah, it's the written record. And again, I just say that because it's so important. This is not just a coincidence that we have all these things, okay? The scriptures themselves are God's word. And that's not something we make up. It's something Jesus points to. Moses, prophets, Psalms. That's what he points to. Written down revelation, all right? These scriptures are to be believed, and if not believed, it's a moral problem. Worth a rebuke from Jesus. Another point here is that they are prophetic and binding on Jesus to fulfill. So it's not just that they're binding on us. They are binding on Jesus. Listen, was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and enter into his glory? Was it not necessary? Jesus is going to, and he's going to point to later, how Jesus says, I've come to fulfill the law. Right? I've come to fulfill Prior revelation, they were waiting, or you, you know, these scriptures were waiting on me. And I've come to sort of walk them out and fulfill them. And the main point of Moses and the prophets is the coming, the sufferings, and the glories of Jesus. Like We've already saw that in Romans. You're going to see it in other places. Again, the main point of the Old Testament is not how to become a better person. Right? The, the main point of the scriptures is to know and love and believe in Jesus. Right? When Paul, tells to Tim, t- Paul talks to Timothy, he says, from child, from, in your child rearing, 
You've, you've come to know the scriptures that make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. That's what he says. And so if you know the Old Testament scriptures, they're going to push you to not trust in yourself, but to put your trust in Messiah. That's, that's what he says. And so if you know the Old Testament, you know the scriptures, they're going to point to Jesus Christ. You think that in these, Jesus says, you have eternal life, but it's these that testify of me, Jesus says. So the scriptures point to Christ fundamentally. So what does all this say about Jesus' view of the Old Testament? Um, because that's primarily when, we, when we're talking about scriptures, that's primarily what we're talking about so far, is primarily the Old Testament. I mean, I'm going to argue that it's, it's um, whatever is scripture takes on the same characteristics. Um, but so far, we're, we're thinking primarily of the Old Testament. What is Jesus' view of the Old Testament? It was scripture. It was God's word, um, and it was meant to be obeyed and believed. And this means that if Jesus, the God-man raised from the dead, who predicted his own death, burial, and resurrection, and it all came true, if, if he believed this about the Old Testament, then, I mean, what, what position should we hold? Well, clearly we should, we should hold his view about the scriptures. Um, so I'm going to have to stop there. There's, I didn't even get close uh, to what I wanted to get, but... We'll just we'll just start to wade into these things and 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 take take our time and, and and move through the text. But I want you to see that that the idea that we have about a an inspired text is not man made. It is not an imposition. It is something that emerges from the lips of Jesus and from the New Testament. So um, we have time for maybe one more comment or question that is pertinent. Father, thank you so much for your scriptures. They are holy. Lord, there is uh, no other book like the one that we have. And Lord, we ask you that you would give us understanding into these scriptures. That you would, oh Lord, um, help us to see the great value that, um, that is in their pages. And we, we pray that most of all that we would see them as pointing to our great need for Jesus Christ, they would, uh, we would see how they capture who he is and what he's done. And Lord, these things would cause our hearts to burn and our mind to be renewed. And uh, so Lord, just um, thank you for them. Pray that you'd be with us now in worship. And uh, Lord, pray that your word would um, just be supreme over all and you would teach us, convict us, and uh, rebuke us as needed that we might walk in a manner uh, worthy of the gospel as we leave. In Jesus' name, amen.